Well, it is great to be back uh, here at home. Last week, I was gone to uh, San Jose, California, celebrating with a good friend of mine that graduated uh, from the same Bible college, and he was celebrating 10 years at his church plant, and uh, we were able to go and, and enjoy some time there. And uh, there, there's a lot of nice things about the state of California. Uh, there's uh, nice mountains, and there's uh, some nice scenery. But there just ain't no place like Texas. I'm telling you right now. I, I told them that too. I was in the territory of the enemy. They were all 49ers. I was the only cowboy around. Then they won the game, and I had to go hide. And um, but I made it back. I survived. And uh, but it's so great to be back uh, back home and uh, just enjoying what is our church and uh, the fellowship that we have here. Uh, thank you so much for those of you that were praying. And it was it was a, a wonderful, truly wonderful blessing, and uh, and it was just, um, but it's just great to be to be back. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Ephesians chapter number six, and we're going to continue our study that we began a few weeks ago from Ephesians chapter six. And uh, I'll remind you that we were talking about tools for the disciple to stand, and that's what um, that is what the Apostle Paul is sharing with the Christians here. In Ephesus, and um, but let me just say before I, we jump into uh, the message this morning, I also want to say thank you to Pastor Tad that was preaching in my place last week. I uh, I know our live stream was down in that first service, but I did get the notes from my wife of of his message uh, from Romans eight uh, twenty eight, and uh, and what a blessing! I heard uh, a few of you also let me know that it was a blessing to you. Uh, the only one downside that I told Pastor Tad, I said thank you for being a blessing to our uh, to our people, but. But Ted, you're supposed to make them miss me. Like, you were out at 10.05. They're going to dread that I'm coming back. Like, oh no, here we go again. 10.30 services. This is, this is bad. But, um, but honestly, I do want to say thank you to, to Pastor Tad for uh, giving up his time last Sunday to come and, and encourage us and challenge us uh, from God's word. And it's always a blessing to, to be able to have uh, friends that, uh, that are willing to come and share. And he's got a wonderful church that he's a part of there, Faith Baptist Church. It's in, uh, it's in the north side of Mission. And uh, him and Pastor Harris have always been a blessing and close friends of mine. And uh, so I do want to say thank you to him for, uh, for uh, coming and preaching last Sunday morning. Well, Ephesians chapter 6, as I was saying, is a passage in which the Apostle Paul is uh, challenging in one way the Christians at Ephesus to live out their discipleship, live out their Christian life in the power of God. And uh, he challenges them to put on the armor of God. Now, if you remember from three weeks ago, if you were here, we started in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, where the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, and he said, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you get to Ephesians chapter 6, he is saying the very same thing, but in a different way. He's, he's shedding more light on what it means to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. When he says to put on the whole armor of God, he is saying the very same thing, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, because our armor is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just these individual uh, items that we need to obtain in our Christian life, but rather it is the Lord Jesus Christ supplying every need that we have as Christians and allowing us to uh, not only fight the, the, the good fight of the spiritual battle, but also to be victorious in it. Now, you'll re recall that the battle of the Christian life 
is a real battle. I know sometimes it can feel like it's just in our minds or something that uh, is, is happening somewhere out there in our life, but, but not always felt as real as it is. But in reality, the spiritual life is actually more real than the physical life. It is the spiritual life where uh, the devil reigns and does his damage, and we see the effects and feel the effects of it here in our physical world. It is in the spiritual world that we find that there is eternal life and no death in that sense. Uh, We find that it is in the spiritual life that the greatest battle that you will have as a disciple is going. So this battle of the Christian life, it is a real battle. I want to say this as we're getting started. The battle is not between Jesus and the devil. There's a lot of people that sometimes when you talk about the spiritual battle of the Christian life, they think that it's, oh yes, Jesus on one side and his army, and then Satan on the other side with his army, and they're, and they're battling. Can I say the battle has never been between Jesus and the devil? There is no battle there. The devil is way too insignificant, way too powerless to even be considered a battle with the creator of the universe. Okay, uh, there is no battling the, the, the one that has been created against the one that created it. The one that created it is immensely more powerful. So the battle in the Christian life really isn't between Jesus and the devil. The battle in the Christian life is between us and the devil. Now, you'll find that the Bible teaches that the angels, which the devil was an angel, he's a fallen angel, is way more powerful than we are. In fact, the Bible tells of a story there in 2 Kings where one angel in one night killed 250,000 soldiers of an opposing army. In one night, one angel. Uh, We find that they are immensely more powerful. So how is it that we fight against a being that is immensely more powerful than us and come out victorious? Well, the only way that that can happen is if we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Victory is only found as we apply him in our life, as we live our life through him. That's the only way you win in the Christian life. It's not by the power of positive thinking. It's not by your own willpower. You find that it is only attained by living in the power of God. That's why in verse number 10 of Ephesians 6, hopefully you're there already. You look at verse number 10. He says, finally, my brethren, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It is through his might that we win the battle. It is through his might that we have victory. Now, as disciples of Jesus, you and I have responsibilities. In any army, soldiers have responsibilities. Generals have responsibilities, right? Um, Lieutenants have responsibilities, and they're all different, but we all have responsibilities. And let me just say, as disciples... We have responsibilities. For instance, we have the responsibility to live a life that is faithful and efficient in the service of our king. That is a a responsibility that every disciple has. It's not only the few good disciples that are to be faithful. Every follower of Jesus ought to be faithful to him. We ought to be faithful to the calling that God has called us to, to the life that God has called us to. Now, how do we... Uh, become faithful? How is it that we live faithful and not fall away? Well, we learned a few weeks ago that the belt of truth is the area that gives us strength to move forward. 
And so we need to put on Jesus as our truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And through him, we have that power to be faithful and efficient in serving our king. But you also find that another responsibility that we have is a life of separation unto God and separated from the world. Now, if we're going to live that way, we have to put on Jesus as our breastplate of righteousness. And we found there in Ephesians 6 that that breastplate covers our heart. If we're going to uh, live a life of righteousness that is separated unto God, we have to live through the righteousness of Jesus. And it's that righteousness that protects our heart. But we also have a responsibility to have a life and live a life of peace and free from worry. And and there the Apostle Paul says, that's why we have these shoes of peace. Our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And daily, as as we slip into these shoes of peace, that is Christ, he gives us his, his peace. So that we might be able to trust in him daily. And so that not that we won't have any worries in life, but rather we don't have to succumb to the worries of life. We can live above those worries, trusting that there is, is someone that is in control that is much more powerful than we are. That as Pastor Tad pointed out last week, that all things work together for good to them that are in Christ. Right? So, so we see how the armor of God is really Jesus Christ in our life being applied in different areas, making him our truth, making him our righteousness, and, and making him our peace in life. And it is essential, if we're going to have victory, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we want to continue our study and see the rest of this armor, but, but I kind of feel this morning like, um, like the infomercial guy, Billy Mays. You ever remember uh, Billy Mays? He was the infomercial guy, and he's always selling stuff, you know, and OxyClean was one of the products, and, you know, it was like, you, you, you're, this thing cleans and, and gets out every stain that's ever been known to men. It'll take out white stains out of white shirts. It'll take out black stains out of white shirts. It'll take out everything, and, uh, and, and I, I, I always was intrigued about these infomercials because they always ended each segment with, but wait. There's more, right? Uh, You you remember that? And it's like, you buy, if you buy in the next five minutes, we will throw an extra five gallon tub of OxyClean and it'll, it'll, it'll last you for at least six to eight weeks. And, and you'll never have to worry about uh, having dirty clothes again. OxyClean will clean it. But wait, there's more, right? And and he says, uh, if if you buy now, we're going to throw in the little handle and the scrubber that will help you to get that stain out completely. But wait, there's more. If you order the next five minutes, we'll throw three of them in. That way you can give them to a friend and a neighbor. But wait, there's more. You know, you get what I'm going with it, right? There's always more. And, And I kind of feel like as we're going through this study, we've already seen Jesus as our truth and our breastplate and our and our peace. But there's more. There's more this morning. And that's what we want to study. What is the more that we want to look at of this armor that gives us victory in the in the Christian life? Uh, what what is the the more that God uh, gives of himself so that we might have a victorious, amazing, joyful, incredible, happy, awesome, triumphant, conquering, thriving, overcoming Christian life? What is it? What is it? Well, notice, if you will, in the passage that he speaks about the shield of faith. Look at verse number 16. That's where we'll start. He says, above all, 
taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Now, what purpose do we have for a shield? Well, a shield is a protective covering that is used to defend oneself from any kind of attacks, from anything that would try to, to pierce our armor or attack us. Um, the, the shield is there to defend us. Now, the Apostle Paul says, taking the shield of faith. Now, we've already known this, that uh, our armor is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our shield. In fact, in Genesis chapter 15, this is not a new concept just in, uh, in Ephesians. You can go all the way back to the Old Testament where God is speaking to Abraham. And Abraham has just gone and rescued his nephew uh, from uh, an army that had taken him captive and uh, in a battle uh, that Sodom and Gomorrah was in. It was five kings against four kings. The four kings captured the five kings and, and defeated them, and they brought their people. And one of those that was captured was Lot. And, and Abraham goes with 318 of his own uh, servants, and they go and they free them. And then in verse number 15, uh, the Lord tells, uh, comes to Abraham, and he says, uh, Abraham, I want you to know that I am your exceeding reward, but I'm also your shield. Now, why would Abraham need a shield? Why would God say to Abraham, I am your shield? Well, he just came from rescuing his nephew, from fighting against four kings. He's not even a king. All he had was 318 men. Listen, there's going to be people uh, looking for you after that. I'm sure he was a little bit afraid of, well, I wonder if they'll come back after me when they regroup. I'm sure he surprised them in that battle. And, and when he came and defeated them, uh, it, was, it was something that they were not expecting. But now they're a little bit more prepared. And, and, and God tells Abraham, listen, Abraham, don't worry. I, I'm your shield. I, I'm your defender. And now the apostle Paul says, listen, the Lord Jesus, listen, he is God incarnate. The Lord Jesus was, was in, uh, in the world in, in Genesis 15. And, and when God's telling Abraham, I'm your shield, it's Jesus saying, I am your shield, Abraham. I'm your protector. How is it that Jesus is our shield? How does he shield us in the Christian life? Well, he's our shield by his sinless nature. You see, a shield is only as good as its strength. If, if our shield was made of paper, they could throw rocks at us and it'll hurt. Right? Yeah, the paper is just not strong enough to, to, to stop any kind of harm coming from uh, rocks even. That's why shields aren't made of paper. You, you need something that's going to be strong and be able to, to be fortified. And, and the way that Jesus is our shield is that because he is a, a man with sin, a, a sinless nature. In other words, Jesus was invulnerable to sin. A shield that is weak and vulnerable cannot stop anything. But a shield that is invulnerable, that is stronger than any other attack, now that's a shield. Now that's something that can protect you. Jesus is our shield because he was strong enough and is strong enough to resist any attack of the devil. I want you to notice in verse 16, one little three-letter word that says, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. It wouldn't be a great shield if it said, where you can quench some 
of the fiery darts. Where you can quench two out of every three fiery darts. No, Paul says, you know, when you put on the Lord Jesus Christ as your shield, he defends you from all the fiery darts. See, we, we have a responsibility as disciples to live a life, a, a life that honors God. We have a responsibility as his children to, to hold him as our shield. Now, Jesus' nature is sinless. Not only did he not sin, it wasn't possible for him to sin. Now, this is important because there's sometimes people that think, well, you know, Jesus is sinless because he overcame. You remember in Mark when the devil came to tempt him and he was in the wilderness and, and he defeated the devil there. But there was no possibility of ever falling in that temptation. Well, you say, well, then, then why was he tempted then? I mean, if, 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 he, if, if he has invulnerability to sin, then why is the devil even attempting to, to try to make him sin or act independent of God? Well, that's interesting, and it's something important to understand. There is no possibility, and the reason there's no possibility is that Jesus in his nature is divine. When he came on and put on flesh and blood and came to this earth, he was real human just like you and me. He had to eat. He got tired. He had to sleep. He limited himself, but he never gave up his nature of being divine. He was always holy. He was always divine in who he was. But his appearance was like you and me. That's why people had trouble believing that he was who he said he was. How can this guy be God? He looks and bleeds just like you and me. How can he really be the son of God? And what they didn't see was the sinless nature of Jesus. He had no possibility. Now you say, well, what about Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15? It says that he was, he was tempted like as we are. Well, I like the way that the uh, Christian Standard Bible translates that verse. It says, where we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are. We find that the word temptation doesn't always mean um, a, an idea or, or, or a, a calling to sin. The word temptation can also mean a testing. In fact, the, the book of James, if you remember when we studied through the book of James, there in chapter 1, James said, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. He wasn't talking about temptations to do wrong. He was talking about testings, trials. Now, Jesus was tested as we are. Jesus can identify, as Hebrews chapter 4, 15 says, with our weaknesses. For instance, uh, when someone is going through uh, a difficult time, maybe they lost their job. And on top of that, they're losing their health. And on top of that, their, their family is in disarray. Jesus can, can say, I can identify with you. I also had a mansion with streets of gold with no presence of sin. And I left that and I came here. I know what it means to be in a dysfunctional family 
his half-brothers and sisters did not like him and did not follow him. They despised him. He knows what it feels like, and he can identify with times of sorrow. He also had friends that died. And he can identify with us. Now, that last phrase, yet without sin, in Hebrews chapter 4, you can see it there in your verse. Uh, maybe a better translation would be apart from sin. In other words, he can identify with those weaknesses and those trials and those testings. He can identify with our sin nature. Okay, He can say, man, I, I know what it's like to be there in sorrow and in difficulty. But he can't say, man, I know what it feels like to be lusting after that woman. Never lusted. Uh, he, he doesn't have that nature. That was never anything of a possibility for him. And by the way, if it was possible for Jesus to sin then when he was on earth, it'd be possible for him to sin now. So there is no possibility for him to sin. His nature is sinless, but that's what makes him such an amazing shield. Because there's no testing that can come into our life that he cannot protect us. There, there, there's nothing that can happen to us that he can't identify with. Now you say, well then, then what was the temptation there when the devil came to tempt Jesus? It was a testing. And Jesus showed himself to be sure, to be faithful, to be someone that you can trust in. I'll put it to you this way. Let's just say that you had to go on a trip tomorrow. All right? And, and on this trip, you had to get on a train and you're going to be crossing a bridge. Now, as you're going to buy your ticket, the person that is selling you the ticket says, all right, where are you getting to? And you say, man, I, 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 I'm going to get to, um, I don't know, some city in Michigan that maybe has a bridge, right, crossing a lake. And, and they say, okay, well, there's, there's, there's two ways to get there, right? Uh, there's, there's, the destination's the same. There's these two bridges, he said. But on one bridge, it's 100% sure to never break or collapse. 100% sure. They have tested it. They have put trains on it. They've put five or six trains to just sit there and it hasn't even moved. It doesn't even shake. It is completely sure. The other bridge is like 99% secure. Like I, we're pretty sure it's not going to collapse. I mean, it might, but I mean, come on, one out of a hundred, maybe. Right? I mean, there's, there's, I, I, we're pretty sure that it won't break. Now, the price of the ticket is the same. Which train do you want to go on? What bridge are you going to cross? Now, there's nobody in their right mind that would take the chance with a bridge that can collapse when there's a bridge going to the same place that cannot collapse at all. Guaranteed. Now, Jesus is that shield. There's no sin that can defeat him. There's no attack that can penetrate that shield because of his sinless nature. Now, because of that, because of that truth of his sinless nature and him saying, I can be your shield, then as our shield, he gives us the power to overcome temptation in our lives, the temptation to sin. Because though he does not feel that temptation, he does protect us who do feel that temptation. He, he does make sure that the fiery darts of the devil to lust, to envy, that he just keeps firing at us, to hate, to not forgive. That, that we do feel. And Jesus says, 
as your shield, I protect you from that. I'm invulnerable to that. There'll never be a time where that will ever defeat me. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, I put it in your notes, verse 37, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We can confidently say we can live a victorious Christian life. You know why? Not because I'm so good. And I protected myself so well. No, because Jesus is that good and he's that powerful. And he's promised to protect us that way. So you say, so a Christian never will fall to sin? No, no, a Christian doesn't have to fall to sin. But the Christian that doesn't put on the Lord Jesus Christ as his shield will fall. And there's been plenty of history to prove that to be true. I know that to be true, not because of just stories I've heard, but because I've seen it in my own life. And I've seen it in the lives of others. Just the Christian life experience of being in battle will tell you that if a Christian falls, it's because not of Christ's sinless nature and being a shield, but because we're not putting him as our shield. And instead of overcoming sin, we're succumbing to sin. There's something I want to really point out really quick in Galatians chapter 2, verse number 20. Notice carefully this verse. It says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, not I, but Christ liveth in me. So we now, he's saying Christ is in us, right? So we can apply him. But now notice he says, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live, and notice this next phrase, by the faith of the Son of God. It's like Paul is saying, you know what? When your faith is lacking and you're thinking, I don't know that I can overcome this. I don't know that I'm ever going to get over this. Then borrow that faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and put him as your shield. Paul says that's the only way you can live. Is you die to self, being crucified with Christ, And you're going to live in this life with Jesus as your shield. And as your shield, you borrow his faith. Because you won't have enough faith on your own. This is why the fallacy of willpower or positive thinking falls short. Because positive thinking has no answer to sinful lusts and desires. It just doesn't. So when you're battling that, it's only the shield of Christ that can protect you, that can lead you to overcome. Let me ask you this morning, is the Lord Jesus Christ your shield today? Is he what you're trusting in to overcome those temptations that you're facing? Or the trials that you're living through? Are you looking to Jesus as, Jesus, you're my shield? I feel helpless. I feel vulnerable. That's when you need to know, but Jesus, I know you're my shield. I I know that you'll protect me. This This is how I feel. This is how I want to talk to this person. This is what I want to let them know about what I think about what they did. Oh, but if I just put on the Lord Jesus Christ, man. 
that temptation to say what I shouldn't say goes away. And the power to say what I should say comes in. The power to do what I ought to do comes in. And suddenly I'm saying I'm more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ. We find that we need to take the shield of faith. Then notice, secondly, he says, the helmet of salvation. Now, this piece of the armor that is Christ is key to our understanding the way we ought to think and live. As disciples, the Bible teaches us to live in the wisdom of God. So I want you to notice that this armor is placed on our head where our mind is at. Paul says, take the helmet of salvation, the helmet that goes and locates it on our heads. Now, our heads is the seat of our intellect and our minds, right? Where the heart is our emotion, we generally think of our minds as our intellect, our logic. It's what we use most of the time to make our decisions. And notice that the Apostle Paul says, the helmet of salvation. Now think about salvation for a second. What is salvation? Well, salvation is is the message of Christ and the act of Christ dying on a cross, resurrecting three days later, and saving us from our sin and the penalty of sin, and the payment of sin, and the power of sin, and one day from the presence of sin. That is salvation. So the Apostle Paul says, put on the helmet of salvation. Salvation is the central message of the Christian faith. And it is this truth by which all truths, or all other faiths, I should say, are measured. By the truth of salvation. Now this is important because every day, there are other faiths giving other messages. For instance, the the faith of the Muslim religion is a different faith than our faith. The faith of the Hinduist or the Buddhist is different from our faith, from what the Bible teaches. So it's important for us to have the helmet of salvation so that we might be able to filter what they're saying with the truth. I call this the test of Calvary. You see, if we're to remain right in our thinking against the lies and deceit of this world, we must filter everything through the message of the cross. We we have to say, is what they're saying aligning with the gospel? I, I love what Paul said in Philippians 3. I put it in your notes. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. What was Paul saying? I'm just trying to filter everything through the cross. I want to filter all I do through the cross. Now, much of this world's wisdom wants to divorce itself from the message of the cross. For instance, it wants to tell us that happiness is really a matter of willpower and positive thinking. If you could just, if you could just have positive thinking in your life, you won't struggle with anxiety. You can, you can overcome it. And, and, the, and the world tells us this, but what does Calvary tell us? What, what, what does Calvary tell us about our minds, for instance? Well, I put it there in Romans chapter 1 in your notes, verse 28 to verse 32. And even as they did not retain God 
Where? In their knowledge that's up here. What did it lead them to? God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, uh, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. In other words, when you don't have the helmet of salvation on your head and you're not filtering everything through the cross, then those kinds of lies that the world gives you leads you to unrighteousness and pride and disobedience and envy and murder and being despiteful to others and to God. You see, only passing all wisdom and philosophy through the cross can we really find victory to think right, and to understand clearly what God wants, what God desires, what God thinks. It's the test of Calvary. But as we put on the helmet of salvation, not only do then we filter everything through the test of Calvary, but also the test of commitment. Do you know that it's the responsibility of every disciple to be thinking right? To be thinking after God's will? You know what Jesus told his disciples over and over and what he told the Pharisees and what he told anybody that would listen to him? I've come to do my father's will. I don't do my own will, but him that sent me. See, the the helmet of salvation in our minds helps us to filter not only is what is being taught truth and how does that align with the Bible on this, but it also teaches us that we are to be committed wholly to God in the way we think. That's why it's so important to make sure that we are surrounding ourselves and filling our minds with right and good and godly things. Our world is so full of godlessness that it's really easy for our minds to be susceptible to those things. I don't know about you, but I really like TV. But I have found there's a lot on TV that's just not good. Now, I like it and I'm attracted to it in my flesh. And so you have to put on the Lord Jesus Christ to have victory over that and be able to say, okay, well, how can we use it for good? Because I've also found that there's a lot of things that you can use for good with the television. That's why we have some in our classrooms. Sometimes we use a DVD curriculum. The TV's helping us get the message out. It's it's a good thing. But as we're understanding, then our minds begin to commit ourselves more and more to the will of God and the plan of God, to the purposes of God. Romans chapter 12, I put it in your notes, verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed, notice this, by the renewing of your mind. Put on the helmet of salvation. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make sure that everything that's coming into your life is being filtered by the cross and by my commitment. If this aligns with the cross and the message of the gospel, then I got to commit myself to live in that way. 
even if I don't like it. Even if that means, well, I got to stop doing this, that's really tough. It is. You better believe it is. Anytime we go against our flesh, it's not easy. The easy thing is to succumb to our flesh. The easy thing is to curse at somebody that curses at you, that cuts you off in the, in the freeway. It's really, the easy thing is to, you know what, let me ride their tail for a while, right? A little bit of road rage, you know, it's not going to hurt nobody. That's the easy thing to do. We're not called to live and do the easy thing. We are called to commit ourselves, our minds, to living what is right and doing God's will. When we're committed to applying Jesus as the helmet of our salvation, then we can now conform into his image without conforming into the world and its philosophies. We've got to ask ourselves this morning, what is controlling our minds? Are we really filtering everything through the cross? Are we not? Let me give you the third one and we'll be done this morning. And that is the sword of the Spirit. Verse 17 says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The final piece of armor that is the Lord Jesus Christ is found to be the sword of the Spirit, which is, the Bible says, the word of God. Now, it's important to note that this is the only offensive weapon that we have. Look at all the armor and you'll find there's nothing else. You're not, we're not throwing helmets at people, right? We're not taking off our breastplate and clonking them over the head. There is only one weapon that is given to us, and that is the Word of God. Everything else protects, protecting our mind, protecting our heart, giving us strength. Everything else, a shield to defend from the fiery darts, yes. Our feet that are daily giving us peace and triumphing over anxiety and fear and worry. Yeah, that, that is all in a defensive mode, but... The sword of the spirit, that's the offensive weapon. Now, how is Jesus then the sword of the spirit? We find that Jesus is the living word. Now, there is a living word and the written word. What we hold in our hands, this thing that we call the Holy Bible, is the written word of God. We believe that every word in this book is true. We believe that uh, this book tells us the thoughts and the will of God for our lives. We believe it from cover to cover. But not only is there the written word of God, but there's also the living word of God. Now, Jesus from the beginning is the living word of God. John chapter 1 and verse 1 in your notes says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You see, when Jesus spoke, he was giving to us the thoughts and mind of God in an audible way so that we could hear it. And when Jesus was walking this earth, as he was speaking, he was speaking the thoughts and words of God to us in an audible way. That's why the disciples heard it. They would say, we can't help but share what we have seen and heard. So we find that Jesus is the, the living word. He is that offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit. But we also see that we have the written word of God, which is also the thoughts and expressions of God, except they're on paper and ink. Whereas Jesus was audible and we could see him, 
and he dwelt among us. With the word of God, it's, it's written on paper. So we might read it and know it and meditate on it. Notice what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. Now, this is important because Jesus and the Bible are the same in nature. They don't contradict one another. The living word will never contradict the written word. They're both the sword of the Spirit. Now, I say that because we live in a world that wants to divorce those two. You'll hear people say when you're talking about the Bible, you know what, we just need to get back to what Jesus said. You know what Jesus said is also what the Bible says. You see, when Paul wrote Ephesians chapter 6, he did so by the inspiration of God. That means God breathed. The word uh, inspiration means God breathed. And, and, and there's nothing that Jesus breathed in the words that he said that will be different from what God showed those men that wrote the Bible. Like Paul and Peter and John. There's no contradiction there. It's for this reason it's important that we know our Bibles. Now, I've said it many times. Just because you read your Bible doesn't make you more spiritual than someone else, and it doesn't. But that doesn't mean that we don't have to read our Bibles then. Well, he said it doesn't make me more spiritual. Right, because it's not a competition. The Bible says comparing themselves among themselves, they're not wise. It's, it's, don't live your Christian life that way. You'll only, you'll only find defeat and fatigue. What it does say, though, what it teaches us is that the Bible gives us the thoughts and will of God. So it's important if we want to live a life that's victorious, if we want to live a life that honors God, that we know what his word says. Now, when the kids are young, I mean, I went through this, and maybe your kids did as well. You go to Sunday school, and you tell them, if you memorize this verse next week, you're going to get a candy. And that's okay. We're wanting them to try to motivate them to, to read uh, God's word. But you know what happens? That doesn't you know, sustain itself through a lifetime. When I memorize a verse, nobody's giving me a candy. Unless I'm going to buy it for myself at Academy or something, right? Uh, nobody does. But you see, I'm not really memorizing scripture now for a candy. I'm memorizing it because I want to know what the thoughts of God are. So I can learn what the will of God is for my life. And now nobody has to come to me and say, you better start memorizing scripture. You better start reading your Bible. I want to read the Bible. I'd like to know what God's thoughts are on the current events of today. What does God think about the different political platforms that are out there. Well, what does God think about how we're to treat our neighbors and those that disagree with us? Uh, uh, what, what, what does God think about uh, life in general that we face every day? We find through the word of God what he thinks. So it's essential for us to take the word of God as our weapon 
But notice that as we do this, whether we're taking the living word, which is Jesus Christ, or the written word, which is our Bibles, that by taking this offensive weapon, it gives us the message of truth that will overcome lies. In order for us to know the truth that will set us free, then we must know both the living word and the written word. And by reading more of the written word, we get to know more of the living word. Can I say at age 40, I feel like I know Jesus better than I did at age 30? I really do. I can honestly say that. I I believe that I've had a chance to draw closer to him in the last 10 years through his word. I love what Jeremiah 15, 16 says. Jeremiah, who is writing down the prophecies in the book of Jeremiah, wrote this, thy words were found and I did eat them and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. I am called by thy name, O Lord, God of hosts. The Old Testament, he said this, the written word, I, I devoured it. Literally, he was not eating paper, okay? He was speaking figuratively, saying, I was soaking in, Lord, the words of your prophecy. In the New Testament, we see the living word say this in John chapter 6, verse 53. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye shall have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus wasn't talking about cannibalism. There are some churches that uh, teach that when you take this little bread or you drink the little cup, it literally turns into, it's called transubstantiation, and they say it literally turns into the, the flesh and blood of, of, of Jesus and the blood, uh, or, or the, uh, the, the wine there literally turns into uh, his blood. That's not what Jesus is saying in John chapter 6. Jesus is saying exactly what Jeremiah said in 15 verse 16. Because the living word and the written word are one and the same. He said, unless you eat up what is the word, then you have no life. You, you want to live a life that's victorious, that's going to be overcoming? Take the, the sword of the Spirit and fend off the lies of this world. It'll tell you, it'll teach you how to distinguish between that you should be living for and that which you should not be living for. Feed on Him. This morning we've seen three, three more responsibilities of every disciple. Living a life that is victorious by making Jesus our shield to overcome temptations and testings in our Christian walk. To live with our minds totally surrendered by placing on our head the helmet of salvation and filtering everything through the cross. And a third responsibility to live with the living word and the written word as our weapons to fight against the enemy. I want to challenge us this morning to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you're going through a trial today. I don't know if you're battling with some sort of sin in your life. But can I encourage you, put on the Lord Jesus Christ as your shield. He'll help you overcome it. I'm telling you, he's invulnerable to sin. 
Or maybe this morning, you're having trouble filtering everything through the cross. And perhaps you're saying, man, everything sounds good. I mean, doesn't every way lead us to God? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. The Bible says that there's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Then I want to encourage you to make the Lord Jesus Christ the sword with which you fight with. To fight the lies of the devil, to keep moving forward for God's kingdom and the cause of Christ. I want to encourage us this morning. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Or as Paul said, put on the whole armor of God. The Christians in Ephesus. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And may God help us as a church, as families, as individuals to put on the Lord Jesus Christ in our life. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word and for Your truth. Thank you, Father, because it is through you and you alone that we can live victorious lives, joyful lives, triumphant and conquering and overcoming lives. And so, Father, I pray this morning as we meditate upon our own and reflect upon our own life, see the areas that we've been challenged by, whether it be the shield put on or the helmet of salvation or the sword of the spirit. I pray each and every one of us would see the Lord Jesus Christ as that which we need today. Help us to not put off till tomorrow what we need to be wearing today. So Father, I pray for your power. Father, be with each and every one of us. Help us to apply your truth today. I ask this in Jesus' precious name.